Welcome to Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm your host, Jonathan Plucker, the Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at CTY and Johns Hopkins University. Our topic today, acceleration, is a bit of a paradox. It's one of the most comprehensively studied strategies in all of education. It's one of the most effective, yet it's probably the most misunderstood, even by experts in advanced education. Today we're going to tackle this complex yet critically important topic with a very knowledgeable guest. Dr. Susan Asseline is the Myron and Jacqueline N. Blank Endowed Chair in Gifted Education at the University of Iowa, where she also directs the world-renowned Bell and Blank Center for Gifted Education and Talent Development. She is the lead author of the Iowa Acceleration Scale, a tool designed to guide educators and parents through decisions about grade-skipping students. In 2015, she co-edited with Nicholas Colangelo, Joyce Van Tassel-Baska, and Ann Lipkowski-Shoplick the seminal acceleration report, A Nation Empowered, How Evidence Trumps the Excuses Holding Back America's Brightest Students. In 2016, Susan received the Distinguished Scholar Award from the National Association for Gifted Children. In addition, she has a strong CTY connection as she worked early in her career as a postdoc with Professor Julian Stanley on the study of mathematically precocious youth at CTY. Last but not least, Susan is a friend and a highly valued colleague, and it's a treat to have her with us today. Susan, welcome to Bright Now. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm really honored to be invited to be part of this podcast. And so, Susan, when people talk about acceleration, they 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 often talk about it like it's this one thing, right? But in reality, it, a lot of different interventions fall under this acceleration umbrella, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. There's a variety of interventions in terms of the quantity as well as the quality, kind of the way they are implemented. Hmm. We think of it in terms of very two very broad categories. One would be re- what is typically referred to as grade skipping. And there are a few different ways. You know, there's kind of the traditional, oh, a student skipped from third grade to skip fourth grade by going from third to fifth grade, for example. That's a typical grade skip. But early entrance to kindergarten is another whole grade skip. Mm. And leaving high school early and going to college is another form of a whole grade skip. So there's that one category of whole grade skipping. And then there's another category known as single subject acceleration or content acceleration. And there are a variety of forms with regard to that. In our report, A Nation Empowered, we talk about 20 different ways in which acceleration can happen. And they are not mutually mutually exclusive. A student can enter kindergarten early, can also be accelerated in a single subject, and might even leave high school early and start college. So those are just three ways uh, that one individual could be accelerated. Susan, do we have any, any data on what the most prevalent, the most common forms of acceleration are? Well, it's not whole grade acceleration. So I I described kind of the grade skipping, the whole grade acceleration, which shortens the number of years in which a student spends time in the K-12 system. The only exception to that would be those students who enter kindergarten early. They're going to stay in the K-12 system all of the years of the K-12 system, typically, but they would be a little younger than most of their um, 
peers who are graduating at the same time that they're graduating. Um, but the variety of ways in which we single subject accelerate or content acceleration are just vast. And um, there are actually four, far more people who are involved in that. Um, the percentages are kind of hard to, to get at because, you know, for example, in mathematics, there are a different, there are many ways in which uh, students can be accelerated in mathematics and the curriculum can be telescoped, etc. cetera. Uh, whereas in some other subjects like literature, it might be a little deeper, it might be, it might be a lot deeper, it might involve some other ways of giving students opportunities to have advanced curriculum. And it just might not be so easily measured uh, in terms of how much is happening. Advanced placement, for example, is mm. a great is is single subject acceleration. And some students actually by the time they finish high school might have had, you know, 15 classes that they've taken. Some have even more. So that's a huge number of students who are taking single subject acceleration. And that is just really kind of hard to get into, like, what is the prevalence of that? Right. When we did our study of above grade level students, we found that students were working above grade level in reading much more than math. That just really surprised us. And I'll link to that study in the show notes. But in the best theory that we came up with was that we don't do much differentiation or acceleration in schools. I think we would both agree we don't do nearly as much as we could and should. But parents and teachers will sort of informally accelerate, informally differentiate in reading, which is just a lot easier because you can just give a kid a harder book. You, you don't have to overthink it too much. But in math, it's it's not like we all have, you know, really engaging linear algebra books lying around the house or lying around the third grade classroom. So it just it seems like it would be easier in math, but it, there just do seem to be some comfort level and accessibility barriers that just make it a little trickier, which then I think means within education we have to focus on things like math and other trickier acceleration areas a little bit more. Well, I think that it has to do, I think part of what you're getting at, though, that's a little bit more complicated is that reading is one of those basic skills and kind of, you know, you uh, you learn to read in order to read to learn, right? Right. So reading's different from math. And um, math is something that we're always doing, but we've kind of separated that out, you know, in terms of very young students. I mean, they're always counting. They're all even before they're students, they're doing math. Right. Something happens. They get to school and something happens. And I don't really know what that is. But there are some who are actually going to be, from a very early age, they're going to be counting. They're going to be doing things that demonstrate that they have a level of precocity that really needs to be addressed in schools, which we haven't really fully, fully, fully recognized. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about math and reading, I think it's important to distinguish um, between math at the elementary level, math at the secondary level, reading at the elementary level, and what's reading at the secondary level? Then you're getting into those content areas, right? right? 
So you don't really have, you're getting into opportunities for other language. So that's why, you know, Dr. Stanley uh, actually separated out from a very early time, uh, kind of the verbal ability and uh, quantitative ability, mathematics ability, and, you know, started the study of mathematically precocious youth. Of course, that has been combined now into SET and study of exceptional talent. And um, there are many ways that people are looking at these together. And all of that is really, really important. But when we're talking about academic acceleration, I think a lot of times we forget that acceleration in the elementary years is different than acceleration at the secondary level, simply because there's so much more um, content acceleration, subject acceleration that becomes available at the secondary level. Mm, but you don't you don't just automatically become a secondary student. So math in particular, which I, and I'm going to put a plug in for my colleague, Ann Lubkowski-Shoplik, and I have been working on this since our early days with, uh, you know, a mentor that, that the three of us have in common, and that's Dr. Julian Stanley. And Ann and I met at the study of mathematically precocious youth, uh, which turned into the study of exceptional talent. But Julian started with that work in the area of mathematical talent at the secondary level, at the very early secondary level, like seventh and eighth graders, because that was the connection that he had with that very first student whose professor, the student was in eighth grade, right? And took a summer class at Johns Hopkins, and that professor went to Dr. Stanley, who was a psychology professor, to get more information about the precocity and what it meant to be involved with a student who was precocious. And that's where the study of mathematically precocious youth came from. So a lot of what we know about math talent is with those secondary students. And a lot of what we think about in terms of whole grade acceleration is really at the elementary level. Oh, and reading, when we talk about reading, we think of it at, you know, kind of the elementary level because reading is one of those basic skills, right, right. that you need to do well in school. It's a verbal skill. So, you know, ever since I um, became involved in working with Dr. Stanley uh, in the late 80s, so I guess we're going on uh, more than 30 years, you know, it's fascinated me that we have these different forms of acceleration and these different forms are uh, applicable at different points in a student's life and in their academic career. But the one thing we know is that acceleration is the one way for many students to be engaged in the content area. And you cannot learn unless you are actively engaged in having access to new material that you are building upon from material that you have already learned. And if you are under-challenged because you're not getting access to new material, then you're not going to be able to learn and you're going to be very frustrated. And if you've ever heard that first student, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to hear Joe Bates talk about how dismal his schooling was before he met Dr. Stanley and Dr. Stanley started to work with him and with other professors in terms of giving him what would be considered accelerated material. It was the right level for him. 
It's just that he was much younger than most people who would have typically been exposed to that material. So, Susan, if, if a parent or educator thinks a student may be a candidate for acceleration, are there sort of initial steps that they should be taking as they consider which acceleration options to explore? Well, it would be my recommendation that uh, anybody would avail themselves of the information that is just publicly available. So I'm going to put a plug in for the Acceleration Institute, which is part of the Bell and Blank Center. Uh, it's something that uh, you may be aware that this was uh, developed uh, around the year 2006 uh, from uh, initial funding from the John Templeton Foundation. And that foundation was very interested in what they considered to be a paradox, which was that we have a lot of evidence about the effectiveness of academic acceleration, yet, despite all of that evidence about the effectiveness, its, its implementation was really pretty relatively low prevalence compared to what we knew would be effective. So they asked us, would you do a report on that? And I think they would have been happy if we had just done, you know, a, a pretty simple report. But of course, we're the Bell and Blank Center, so we did it kind of comprehensively. Uh, and that was the first report that we did, A Nation Deceived. And that report is still available on our website. But we followed up with that report uh, almost a little more than 10 years afterwards with the report, A Nation Empowered. Because after A Nation Deceived, we became a nation informed, and then we became a nation empowered. And that, po that point, I think, is, is important because we do have all of this evidence about the effectiveness of acceleration, but it's still slow going in terms of having people really fully understand when it should be implemented, how it should be implemented. So going back to your question, you know, what are the first steps? The first steps, I think, are for people to become informed. And that's very easy to do because there are lots of materials that are available on websites, including the Acceleration Institute website uh, that is hosted at the Bell and Blank Center. And so that would be the first step, become informed. And then the second step is communicate with, uh, with educators so that you can engage then in a dialogue about what's the next best step. So with that in mind, um, it's, I think that the communication issue is so important, right? Um, and how parents um, approach educators when they want to explore acceleration options um, is something that in my own personal experience I've seen done really well and I've seen not done so well. Uh, a very quick story. So when I was an elementary school teacher, we had a student transfer in from a different school um, in a uh, completely different state. It was an accelerated school. So he was way ahead of his uh, fifth grade peers in terms of math. Uh, fortunately, the uh, middle school was also cited uh, in like the very next building. And so the parents said, hey, look, he's ready for sixth or probably even seventh grade math. Could we just do single subject acceleration? Um, of course, politics got um, involved. They pre-tested him. He actually ended up knowing most of sixth grade before school started, um, uh, sixth grade math. And the compromise that the principal was able to work out was that five, uh, four days a week he would attend sixth grade math 
but on Fridays, the schedules were complicated, and so he had to take fifth grade math, which he already knew. And uh, the fifth grade teacher was grudgingly supportive. The principal was like, look, that's the best that we could do. I went to the parent, and um, she was a a great advocate for her uh, children. And I thought she was going to be furious. Um, and I was young and idealistic, so I was furious for her. <laughs> but, then I, <laughs> but then I talked to her, and I was like, I'm really sorry. This is the best that we could do. And, um, and she said, no, hey, look, you know, it's not perfect. It's not what I would want ideally, but my child's going to be accelerated and is going to be roughly where they need to be in math. You know, and sometimes you have to declare victory. And I, I think that's something, especially with acceleration, that just makes educators nervous for some reason. Um, I, I just w- would like your thoughts on that. Like, I, at what point is the perfect the enemy of the good? You know, I, I, I just, I just think we have to declare victory sometimes and say, look, at least there's some challenge. At least there's a little more engagement there, even if it's not perfect. You know, and maybe in three or four months, if it's working well, then we can advocate for more. Yeah, uh, perfect is always the enemy of the good. Um, And there's just no such thing as perfection. We're human beings. We're working, um, for the most part, in a public school system. Uh, I know that there are actually opportunities that some people have in terms of private schools, but frankly, sometimes they can be even more challenging to have a a student accelerated. Um, But that's a whole other story that we won't get into. Mm. So uh, I think having the best fit that you can have uh, by looking at all of the information that's available is what really needs to happen. It just always shocks me, but I don't know why, because I've, I've heard it so many times that decisions are made based on schedules right. <laughs> as opposed to, to what the student Logistics. needs. Logistics, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and we have so much opportunity now to figure out what a student is ready for. And in addition to that, we really have so many different ways that we can tailor the opportunities for providing the students with the appropriate curriculum in the setting that makes the most sense. What is always important to me um, is that people consider when you're talking about single subject acceleration, that's what this case was, was that you consider the whole scope and sequence and that you plan down the road. That's actually really, really important to keep in mind. Not just dealing with the, you know, what are we doing tomorrow, but how are we dealing with what needs to happen right away and mm. then planning down the road? That is just so important. That's a great so, point. So, yeah. yeah, that's, and that's where information comes in. Like, we don't have to, I've often said, we don't have to cross our fingers and hope that this is going to work. We have right at our fingertips all kinds of information that we can get about student readiness for whole grade acceleration and a lot of information that we can get about readiness for single subject acceleration. And there should be a level of flexibility that exists now because of technology that should make it pretty easy for us to figure out not only how to accelerate either single subject or multi-subject so that it's almost like a whole grade acceleration if the student's ready and have that be such that we can plan throughout their academic career what that will look like. 
So in the couple minutes that we have left, I, there's sort of an 800-pound gorilla in the corner of uh, the room whenever you talk about acceleration. And it's the major pushback that I hear from educational leaders usually saying, well, I don't know if we want to try this or not. And it's the perceived social and emotional harm that acceleration can cause. What does the research really say about that? Wrong. <laughs> Everything that you and I know, it's just kind of shocking when you think about it because there is a lot of grade retention that happens um, still to this day. And we know that that is actually really harmful. Yet we have all of this evidence about how harmful it is. We have the opposite in terms of grade acceleration. When carefully done, when all of the factors are looked at very carefully, and as you know, we've developed tools at the University of Iowa to guide people through the decision-making process for making a decision about whole grade acceleration. We have a process for making decisions about single subject acceleration, especially in math and science. And when that decision-making process is implemented correctly, what the research tells us is that the students are happy. The students actually, this is the right decision for them. There are at the very least small gains and oftentimes large gains in terms of their social, emotional, and their psychological development. The majority, and by majority I mean like more than 98% of students who have been accelerated say that they would do it again. And their mm. one regret, what's their one regret? That they didn't do more of it. Right, that they didn't do it sooner. <laughs> yep. Yep. I mean, and so, and by doing it sooner, you can have more acceleration. Now, I'm not talking about pushing. We're only talking about get, giving students what they're ready for. We're going to have to stop there today. We have so much more to talk about. We're going to have to have you back. Uh, thank you for being with us today, Susan. Well, I was delighted to be asked, and I hope that I'll have an opportunity to share more information with you at some time. Absolutely. Our guest today was Dr. Susan Asseline, who is the Myron and Jacqueline Blank Endowed Chair in Gifted Education at the University of Iowa, where she also directs the Bell and Blank Center for Gifted Education and Talent Development. Susan and I mentioned lots of different resources and information sources. I'll make sure that those are all listed in our show notes for this episode. Thank you again for listening to Bright Now. That's it for this episode of Bright Now. Tell us what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes by emailing your suggestions to brightnowpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Bright Now, support us by sharing the podcast with friends on social media, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Bright Now is produced by Jonathan Pucker, Tracy Guerin, and Trisha Schellenbach. Audio production by Iris Starkangelo and the team at Clean Cuts, a three C's company. Our score was written by Austin Coughlin from Noise Distillery. Special thanks to CTY's Interim Executive Director, Amy Shelton. Bright Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced students worldwide. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.